millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart. And I'm Gary Bain. And together, we're... Pete and Gary's Military History Podcast. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Gary Bain and once more I'm joined by Peter Hart. Hello, hello, hello. And what are we doing today, Pete? We're doing Chocks Away, part of our Arras Air War series. A great title that uh, I know you uh, particularly like this title. Um, what, what it is, is uh, we thought we've been doing the Arras Air War. We've been looking at the fighting, uh, you know, the, the setup and all the way through. And we just felt that we, we needed to look at what it was like for the actual pilots joining the squadrons and, 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 and the sort of generalizations of being a fighter pilot a scout pilot um, uh, because we've dealt an awful lot with the uh, reconnaissance pilots and artillery observations so and and we said didn't we that the losses were were accepted by Trenchard and his men as a a necessary part of uh, protection as it were for the men on the ground Um, so what happens in this phase? Because we've, we've gone right the way up to the 9th of April haven't we so what's happening now? Well and beyond and beyond Gary we've been like Thingies, beyondies, beyondies. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, so uh, well, the, essentially, because of the casualties, there's a constant stream of raw pilots coming out. That's that's what we're at, isn't Very it? Very difficult to chew. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you like you you like a pilot to be well well cooked. Um, and uh, that's rather unfortunate. We give <laughs> given some of the uh, oh dear the quotes, <laughs> uh, but. Um, they, 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 they sort of make their way out to French, uh, France, the new pilots, and uh, and join the squadrons uh, um, for the first time. And they must be very tense and excited. But um, it's not a novelty, is it, for the the people who are already there? There's people joining and going <laughs> all the time. Um, and though it's strange for the newcomer, for the, the pilots there, it's just routine. And you're going to be Second Lieutenant Jeffrey Hopkins of Twenty Two Squadron, Royal Flying Corps. Next day, an RFC corporal met me on the platform at Amiens Station, took my kit to a crossly tender outside and drove me to a bar where, he said, I would find some other officers from the squadron. I found them there having a drink before returning to the aerodrome. I was introduced all round and we had a drink before setting off. We had a very crowded and noisy drive back. They dropped me at the mess on a very cold night with thick snow on the ground. The first person I met on going into the mess was Gladstone, who had joined up with me from school. He introduced me to the others there. 
told me that the commanding officer and our flight commander were not there that night and that I should report in the morning. After something to eat and drink, I was shown my billet. This was a farmhouse in the village, my room being a sort of cubby hole off the main living room with a bunk bed containing a pallias filled with straw. I have vivid memories of how cold it was. Uh, the four Yorkshiremen sketch has come to, come to mind, thinking of what the average infantryman on the Western Front in that uh, snowfield uh, thing would have said, Hey, hey, pallias, bunk bed. Cold, was it? <laughs> ah, you were lucky, lucky. I had all it ground. <laughs> well, I lived at Botmut Lake. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, literally, in some cases. But, I mean... The, 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 anyway, uh, so do you think? Uh, did, how do you think that, that the squadron receive a, a, a new arrival? What do you think they're looking at, thinking about? Well, they'd be assessing them, wouldn't they? They'd be be looking at them with concerned eyes. They were not yet ready to face the German scouts, and before they were allowed over the lines, it was imperative that they're given the chance to improve their basic skills and to get the hang of flying their new aircraft. And this is what Lieutenant Bob Kay of 46 Squadron says. I am very bucked as I have got over the dull period I was passing through the week before. You know how you reach a stage in every game, billiards, golf, etc., when you go hopelessly off for a bit. At least I always have that stage in everything. Before today, my last half dozen landings or so have been absolutely rotten and I had lost all my judgment and confidence. However, I knew it was only my dull phase I was passing through and that it wouldn't last long. Sure enough, I have enjoyed flying no end today and I've felt completely at home in the air and landing just as before, which is very satisfactory, isn't it? Yeah. We're both thinking the same thing. Are you going through a dull phase? That's 10 years? Yeah. I certainly am. Well, his dull phase could have been quite dangerous as well, couldn't it? Yeah. Well, bad landing in those aircraft. Mm. Now, a lot of the pilots had insufficient hours of solo flying and only minimal experience on the aircraft that they're actually going to be flying into action. In life or death situations where split-second reactions were all important, such a lack of familiarity with the basic tools of their trade was a dangerous and often fatal handicap. I think, yeah, because because in in combat, a, a raw pilot, as we call, they they could a, a new pilot, one who's not used to it, they could freeze or or even just lose control of their aircraft. They you know they could go completely all wrong altogether. And and I like this next quote, and I'm glad you're reading it. It's um, it's from. Second Lieutenant Albert Godfrey of 46 Squadron RFC. And he does absolutely everything you can possibly do wrong. I don't like to correct you, but he's 40 Squadron. I knew that. What did I say? 46. You're close. My eyesight's not good enough. I've got a detached retina. Have you? Yeah. You keep it in a box. Yes. (laughs) Now, Second Lieutenant Albert Godfrey of 40 Squadron says this. We took off from the aerodrome in formation and climbed towards the lines. The machines climbed at such an angle that I expected them to stall, but knowing the danger in getting behind my formation, I stuck with them. In a few minutes, the flight commander flapped his wings, a prearranged signal for Huns. I could not see anything, but suddenly the leader banked directly in front of me. This sudden movement certainly gave me a shock. I immediately tried the same thing, but alas, it was too much for me. I'd never been within 10,000 feet of this altitude before. In trying to turn the machine, it went into a spin. Luckily, I was many thousand feet up. 
It spun like a top, but pulling myself together, I applied the old formula and it came out as easily as it went in. I saw two machines on my left and thinking they were my formation, I decided to join them. Suddenly, I saw a third machine, but still thinking it was my formation chasing a Hun, I continued on my way, and to my astonishment found they were all Huns, and after me like a pack of wolves. It was then that I really learned to fly. I knew I must protect my towel, as under the circumstances to shoot at them was a secondary consideration. I had never fired a gun from a scout machine. I knew where the lever was to fire with, and that was all. When a Hun would get on my towel, I tried a sharp turn and the machine would turn into a half roll or some other evolution. I do not know how long I did this, but it seemed hours. Suddenly, a flight of Sopwith triplanes appeared. I was greatly relieved. The triplanes did not shoot any of the Huns down, but they certainly dispersed them. Arriving at the aerodrome, I only had a few minutes petrol left. The other pilots had returned and were greatly relieved by my appearance. Thus ended my first flight in a scout without firing a single shot. I, I can't imagine how lucky he was. He'd made so many mistakes. Um, mo most people would have just made one of those mistakes and that would be it. There'd be curtains for them. A uh, great story, great story, uh, and beautifully read, if you don't mind me saying so. Thank you. Now, because the recce and artillery observation course squadrons flew two-seaters, someone would eventually have to risk their <laughs> life with a new pilot. I could just imagine an experienced old observer's attitude to that. <laughs> now, the veteran observer, Second Lieutenant EDG Galley, was sent up as observer to accompany the newly arrived Captain W.E. Salter, when a German scout attacked, Salter froze and flew straight on, which was an easy target. And this is what 2nd Lieutenant EDG Galley of 22 Squadron says. As you became an experienced observer, you had to go up with a green pilot. And I was one day, I was up one day with such a fellow. An enemy machine got onto us and the pilot flew dead straight. First of all, I got a bullet through my arm. Then he got one in the ankle and we went not completely out of control, but we drifted, circling in a rather flat way, like a leaf sometimes comes down and crashed just behind the front line where the Australians were. <laughs> oh, dear. So lucky in two senses there. Lucky that wasn't injured more severely and lucky that he landed with the Australians. Always love good company, always friendly and, and nice. especially Absolutely. To to their uh, pommy comrades. Now, gunnery was also of vital importance if they were to have any chance of shooting down a German air aircraft. Real opportunities were rare, and if they were uh, missed through bad marksmanship, then their opponents would live to fight again. Yeah, and another point which just occurs to me is we always think they could just fire and fire and fire and fire, but actually they've got very limited number of rounds. Uh, in a Lewis gun, there were only... 47? Seven. Uh, but even in a, in a Vickers, there's only so many bullets. They don't have endless bullets. They just have, uh, oh, just, I don't know how many, but not that many. Uh, uh, enough for a 10 second burst or something. Uh, oh, that'd be interesting. Someone could tell us. That. Tell us how long if, uh, a Vickers could fire. I'll be interested to find that out. That's something for you to do, uh, listener. Now, the most common method of target practice used was a simple static ground target. And this is how Captain William Bond of 40 Squadron describes it. We put out a target sheet, six feet square on the ground, and then go up and dive on it, firing short bursts with the Lewis gun. It's rather trying, 
because you get so keen to sight properly onto the target when you are coming down almost vertically that you forget the ground is coming near. Now, this is, I, I can see a problem here. <laughs> For, especially for a new greenish pilot. Uh, they, they, but, but they've got to practice. And this is, I'm going to be second lieutenant Gordon Taylor. Fantastic book. Uh, is it No Parachute? Uh, written by him, 66 Squadron RFC. And he says this. I was watching a pup dive on this target only a day or two after we arrived. He was coming down steeply with engine on, firing, but holding his dive beyond the time when he should have started to pull out. I was in agony trying to will him out of the dive before it was too late. He must have realised his mistake, seen the ground coming up and pulled back far too heavily on the stick. With a ridiculously harmless sound, like a child's balloon bursting, the aeroplane disintegrated. The fuselage dived straight into the ground with a crunchy noise of somebody treading on a matchbox. Tattered fragments of wing followed it, fluttering slowly to earth. The silence which settled over the scene was appalling. Yeah, that's somebody dying there, just there in front of you. That must have been a shaker. Now, experienced pilots knew that there was more to hitting a target than pointing the aircraft in the sort of general direction and letting loose with vigour and vim. Painstaking preparation was required. Yeah, it was. I mean, the, 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 the amount of preparation on the ground, prepare, getting your guns working is incredible. And, and Lieutenant Cecil Lewis of 56th Squadron RFC tells us this. What does he tell us, Gary? That meant hours at the butts with your machine trued up in flying position, shifting your gun mountings about, getting your sights synchronised on your gun burst at 200 yards. In addition to that, there was the loading of the guns. The Vickers gun had a disintegrating belt made of little aluminium links and the bullets themselves were the pins between the links that held the whole thing together. In 56th Squadron, we weren't allowed to have the armourers do any of the preparation of ammunition belts for fighting. We did it ourselves. We spent two or three hours every morning loading and making the belts that we should use on the afternoon patrol. By taking care with the way the belts were put together, we got them so they wouldn't jam in the breach. Uh, hopefully wouldn't jam in the breach. I think and also, you've got no one to blame but yourself if they do. I think that's a very big part of it. Uh, now, as soon as the, the new pilots were considered ready, or ready-ish, I think is uh, the expression, they began flying regular offensive patrols. These punctuate the day for, for a scout pilot. Uh, the one, the, what's the one that's the cliche, Gary? Come on, what is it? The Dawn Patrol. Dawn Patrol. You get lots of films called that kind of thing. She gets out a lot, that Dawn Patrol. Oh, <laughs> terrible. It, 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 it's, it, it's seen as the B or A. In films, it's often that's what, that's where the sharp end of the war is. But, but we, we've always, we want to just say it again. What's the real point of it all? It's not the Dawn Patrol. No, they're only there to protect the Army Cooperation Corps aircraft and to destroy the German equivalents. Right. However, we're going to deal with it now because it is interesting. Uh, do you know what? I've just wondered, what did they wear? Well, I'm going to tell you uh, because uh, um, they, they, they have to prepare for, for the, 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 the conditions in the cockpit because it's a bit chilly up there. And this is what Flight Lieutenant Robert Compton of 8 Naval Squadron, Royal Naval Air Service, RNAS, we'll say in future. And he says this. We were, of course, muffled up to the eyes and wore fleece-lined thigh boots drawn up over a fleece or fur-lined sidcut suit, a fur-lined helmet complete with chin guard and goggles with a strip of fur all round them. 
Any parts of bare skin left open to the air were well coated with whale oil to prevent frostbite. For our hands, we found that an ordinary pair of thin silk gloves, if put on warm and then covered with the ordinary leather gauntlet gloves, retained enough heat for the whole patrol. Well, that's interesting. Now, normally the patrol would be a flight of about four aircraft. The pilots would stumble out to their machines, brushing the sleep from their eyes. Oh, Oh, it's too early in the morning. Well, it was a bit early. It was dawn patrol. And this is what Flight Lieutenant Robert Compton goes on to say. All pilots should be in their machines five minutes before the time of starting. Five minutes early for five minutes early. Well, they'd be five minutes late. They are the, the Royal Naval Air Service. The engines, having been previously tested by the petty officer of the flight, that's the ground crew, when all engines are ticking over and the petty officer signals to the leader that all the engines are r- running satisfactorily, the flight leader leaves the ground. The remaining four machines, if head to wind, should get off in 30 seconds, the order of getting off corresponding to each machine's position in the formation. So that's obviously five aircraft in that In that, in that flight, yeah. yeah. So uh, so they take off, and what would they do when they'd taken off? Gain altitude and then head off towards the front line. Uh, what would they be doing? Well, as they gained height, they'd be looking around, checking their personal orientation as they flew over the lines. Where they were in yeah. relation to everything. Where's Arras? Where's this? Where's the that? Gaining height was really important in aerial combat. We know a phrase about that. Do we? Yeah. Always. Remember? Oh. Uh, Edward Manick. Edward Manick. Always from above. Seldom at the Seldom same at level, the, never, never below. And it, if you remember, that was our motto in uh, hill walking, aerial combat, and sex. Yeah. Now, <laughs> as I was saying, gaining height was all important in aerial combat and sex. It allowed a far greater freedom of manoeuvre, and it gave a flight commander the opportunity of seating or evading uh, battle, depending on the situation. And this is what... You've thrown me somewhat. This is what Lieutenant Cecil Lewis of 56 Squadron Royal Flying Corps has to say. We were about 20 miles behind the lines, so we had time to climb up on our way over to get height this side of the lines. We usually got up to 15 or 16,000 feet before we actually crossed the lines into enemy territory looking for trouble. Our eyes were continually focusing, looking, craning our heads round, moving all the time, looking for those black specks which would mean enemy aircraft at a great distance. Between clouds, we would not be able to see the ground or only parts of it, which would sort of slide into view like a magic lantern screen far, far beneath. Clinging close together about 20 or 30 yards between each machine, swaying, looking at our neighbours, setting ourselves just right so that we were all in position. Now, another thing that's come to mind is, you know, there's an idea that, you know, the silk scarves that they wear, that's seen as an affectation. Well, they used to wear them to protect their neck. Otherwise, they get really sore necks from continually looking around like this. Uh, Good point. Yeah, if they flew too low... What might interfere with them? Well, they'd uh, attract the attention of the German anti-aircraft guys. Archie! Archibald, certainly not. Now, these were not too much of a threat, as individually they were fairly inaccurate and there was rarely enough of them to set up a barrage that would splay across the skies to make evasion a seriously difficult uh, proposition. And this is what Flight Lieutenant Robert Compton of 8 Naval Squadron RNAS has to say. Suddenly, the woof-woof of anti-aircraft shells bursting in front of us disturbed our peace of mind, for we were now at a height of only 9,000 feet and a good target. As the bursts were in front of us, we altered course to starboard. Starboard? 
starboard to an increased speed at the same time. The next bursts were on our port beam and not far away, so we altered course slightly to port and again increased our speed. The following bursts were well behind and to our right, so we were through with that ba battery. And then, but one thing about that is, of course, you could steer straight into the next burst. It's all a bit tense, I suppose. Now, scout patrols were not normally troubled by the German anti-aircraft batteries. They're too fast. Uh, uh, yeah. But they did pose a real risk to the Army cooperation aircraft. Slower. And, of course, if you're flying, taking photographs or, or doing artillery observation, you're, you're on a steady course. Easier now, to predict. It was vital that a scout patrol maintained a strong formation, tightly focused and responsive to their leader's requirements. Communication between aircraft was obviously non-verbal. Yes. <laughs> so lots of finger pointing, I should imagine. But constant practice could bring remarkably sophisticated results over a period of time. And once more, you're going to tell us what Flight Lieutenant Robert Compston says. It was remarkable to what pitch efficiency in manoeuvring a flight could be brought by merely moving the aeroplane. For example, a turn to the right would be signalled by rocking the machine from side to side and then dropping a wing down to the right and commencing the turn. The pilots on the right of the leader would slow down their engines and pull their machines up, slowing them as much as possible while the leader would fly around in a normal manner. Those on the left who had, complete, had, who had to complete the outer and greater circle would put their noses down and go as fast as possible to catch up. Thus would a turn be made. And when all were on an even keel after the turn, each pilot would close up to his original distance from his next man. Such a manoeuvre came easily after practice, but to an inexperienced pilot, it was extremely difficult. And so you can see that if you turn to the right, those to the right will have to slow down to conform and those at the left will have to go faster. But it's easier said than done, and that's what that's what he's saying, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, the way to think about it is how they run um, in the Olympics, where they have a staggered start, and the guy on the inside lane is much further back than the guy who's in lane eight. Yep, 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 yep. Now, um, what do you think? What, what What's the problem for a new pilot? Well, an inexperienced pilot. Well, their, their clumsy flying made their aircraft seem slower than the rest. Every time a small change of course was indicated by the flight leader, they would lurch out of the formation and then they'd have to chase hard to catch up. So they'd be heavy-handed. So when there's a minute change of course, they'd go... <laughs> and let's not forget, it was fatal to be left behind and become a straggler. Why? <laughs> Why do you think? Was it the Germans? The Germans. Now, another skill that only seemed to come with practice was the ability to see what was happening all around them in the air. Actually, if you think about it, most new pilots seem to have a kind of tunnel vision. They're only aware of what was immediately in front of them. And that's that's human nature, isn't it? They'll be concentrating on what's in front of them. They'd be oblivious to the larger and often more threatening picture. And once more, you're going to tell us what Flight Lieutenant Robert Compton of 8 Naval Squadron has to say. It does not follow that because a man can see a figure on the ground and be able to see whether it's a man or woman, that he will be able to see things in the air. For I've known many men with first-class sight who, when they commenced aerial work, appeared to be quite blind at times. This was chiefly due to the fact that an that an inexperienced pilot had to give most of his attention to the leader, watching closely for signals. He therefore could not be expected to see as much as one whose eyes were attuned to distance and whose whole attention could be given to finding the enemy. 
I remember one of my pilots seeing me fire at something. He did not see that it was an enemy aeroplane, although we were very close to it. He fired his guns, presumably in sympathy, hitting the middle plane of my triplane about 12 inches from my right shoulder. What if he commented on that when he... Probably when they got down. I don't think the hand signals would have conveyed it. Well, I'm not so sure. (laughs) The beginner was also not accustomed to the dreadful physical challenges of flying in an open cockpit aircraft at high altitudes. As you've mentioned, the extreme cold they might have expected, although it led to agonising circulation problems and even to cases of mild frostbite. But the consequences of oxygen starvation weren't fully appreciated at the time. No, and, uh, well, it wasn't really till the Second World War where they did tests with bomber pilots and they, people found that they were behaved stupidly or irrationally or didn't know what was happening. This is, so it's the Second Lieutenant you Gordon You must Taylor. be starved of oxygen then. Permanently. <laughs> uh, <may. laughs> In an, this is what Second Lieutenant Gordon Taylor says. 66 Gordon. In an attempt to entice the albatross up to meet us in the thin air of the higher levels where the Germans did not have such a disastrous margin of performance over the lightly loaded SOP width, we pushed up the height of our patrols to 17,000 feet. This is a SOP with uh, scout, not the uh, camel. And sometimes higher. We must have been affected by lack of oxygen at this height, but we never noticed it. And at least our opponents were in the same situation since neither side used bottled oxygen. The only noticeable effect I can remember having having from these patrols was a tendency to fall into a deep and dreamless sleep as soon as I returned to earth in my bed. Yeah, but the tests show on the ground when they when they change the prep that, oh, that, 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 that there is a hell of a difference in how the mind performs. Um, you just don't know it. And he wouldn't notice his own uh, degradation of performance. No, uh, they used to film them for the RAF in the Second World War. People couldn't believe how stupid, how, how strange it was. Wow, yeah. Steep dives from altitude resulted in sudden changes of air pressure that caused dreadful headaches. The bends! Disconcerting nosebleeds, and sometimes their ears would bleed. Oh, God. Uh, there's also, and this is a point that I'm sure you've uh, thought of, uh, what, what, uh, what type of oil were, were, was lubricating the engine? Well, it was castor oil. Um, and, and that would spray out from the engine. What, what effect does castor oil have on the uh, human being? Not you, probably. Uh, well, they probably suffered from what we, we know colloquially as uh, Bain's disease because it's a powerful laxative. <laughs> it is. It is. Uh, and there's a rotary engine spewing this thing out a few feet in front of them. Uh, yeah, good stuff. Uh, now, uh, as... As they pressed forward over the lines, they're looking for trouble wherever they can find it. Now, this is the scout pilot. Um, uh, what are they looking for? What are they looking for, Gary? Well, they're looking for individual German reconnaissance and artillery observation aircraft. That's particularly important because that is that they, they could kill our lads on the ground. Yep. German offensive patrols. That could kill our artillery observation and, and reconnaissance air, aircraft. Yep. And anything that moved uh, that warranted investigation. Let's have a short break to to consider that. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome back. Now, the Germans, they sought ways to maximize the advantage of their superior aircraft whilst minimising the disadvantage of their inferior numbers. Now, we've talked about that in, in previous podcasts. How did they do it then? Let's summarise it. Well, ultimately, they achieved this by combining flights and even squadrons together, thereby increasing the size of their formations, which were often layered one above the other, sometimes with attempting decoy flying well below them. Come and get me. I'm easy <laughs> yeah. prey. Uh, today, I'm going to be the decoy. Oh, lucky Gary, they call me. <laughs> but yeah, uh, so the Germans, badly outnumbered, so they concentrate their resources so so that when they did in- encounter British scouts, they, they, they would be in superior numbers. Uh, yeah, but only in that immediate locality. Now, um, could the uh, could the Royal Flying Corps refuse combat in 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 those circumstances? No, we we've mentioned this throughout these podcasts. Their job was to sweep their enemies from the Arras skies. Any unmolested formation of German scouts was a serious threat to the Army cooperation aircraft plying their trade over the lines below. Yeah, they they just slaughter uh, B2s, uh, the albatrosses, the falses, the other German. They just shoot them down like wolves on a flock of sheep. I'll just think about that for a moment. Now, that meant that even if the British scouts were outnumbered, outclassed and at a serious tactical disadvantage, they still had a duty to engage the German scouts regardless of the risk. And you're going to be Lieutenant Cecil Lewis again, 56 Squadron. Sooner or later, we would spot the enemy. If we were lucky, it would be below us, but we were always under the enemy. Our machines, good as they were, 
were still not up to the Huns, who usually had a 1,000 to 2,000 feet ceiling clear above us. Even at 16,000 feet, we were liable to be jumped from on top. That didn't have to worry us. We were usually outnumbered two or three to one. We used to engage irrespective if there was anybody above or not, just chance it. Usually, the top flight of enemy aircraft who were above us would come down and jump on us as we went down. Yeah, but they had to. It's not a matter of choice because what really matters is the air war, which matters to the ground war. So they've got to protect those army cooperation machines. Um, aerial tactics, are they static at this stage, 1917? No, they're developing all the time. Certain basic principles have been established very early on by Oswald Bolker. Did he not share it with the British, though? No, it took the British a bit longer. <laughs> but by 1917, they'd hammered out the basic principles. And one experienced formation leader sums it up uh, with his tenets of aerial fighting. And this is what Flight Commander Colin McKenzie, again of 8 Naval Squadron RNAS, says. The following Ten Commandments in aerial fighting are considered of vital importance. They may appear cowardly. The man who gets most Huns in his lifetime is the man who observes these commandments and fights with his head. The others either get killed or get nerves in a very short time, and the country does not get the full benefit of having trained them. Harsh, harsh, Gary. They are. Do not lose formation. You'll find this repeats a lot of what we've said. Two, do not press an attack on a two-seater who fires at you before you are in a perfect position. Break away and attack him or another hostile aircraft later with a chance of surprise. Do Three, do not stay to manoeuvre with a two-seater. That's pretty well the same thing. A lot of these are repeats, aren't they? Four, do not dive to break off a combat. Huns can dive better than you, but are, as a rule, worse climbers. Five, do not necessarily attack a superior formation. You will get a better chance if you wait five minutes. He just means you've got to manoeuvre into a tactical position, yeah. Six, do not attack without looking for the machine above you. He will almost certainly come on your tail unawares while you're attacking if you, do, if you are not watching him. Look behind continually while on a dive. Seven, do not come down too low on the other side, or you will have all the enemy onto you. Eight, don't go to sleep in the air for one instant of your patrol. Watch your tail. Nine, don't deliver a surprise attack by firing too soon, unless you want to scare the hostile aircraft off a friendly machine's tail. Ten, don't deliver a surprise attack at over 100 yards range at the very most. He means getting close. Now, these do mirror a lot of the things we've been through from Bolker, from Richtoff, and from Manic. Uh, I think uh, they're not the best constructed list of ten. I'll prefer... No, they've been stretched out to, to meet ten. And, and, you know, it's surprising that, as you rightly say, a number of other aces said it more succinctly, but actually got into trouble when they broke their own... Rules. Well, Richtofen, you know, Richtofen being Manic, an example. And Manic. Both died breaking their own rules. Um, but it, it's fundamentally sensible advice uh, in, in total. Uh, what's the overall plan or, or idea of, of the Ten Commandments? Well, it's, it's to give their victims no chance whatsoever to return fire and to kill them without warning. So no knight errantry, no gallantry of the, no knights of the air. This is murder. Uh, well, not murder. It's, it's, it's war. efficient killing. It's war. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, now, the, 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 the one thing that films love, when scout formations encounter each other, what would happen? Well, they'd, they'd split up sort of all out of all control and go at each other, hammer and tong. And, and that's what's become known as a dog fight. A dog, and, and that's a good, uh, if you've ever seen a bunch of dogs, remember at Gallipoli where we saw all those dogs fighting, trying to kill that helpless puppy, actually. But uh, if you remember that, you get the idea of what it's like. And you're going to tell us what Lieutenant Cecil Lewis, he's a brilliant describer. His book, Sagittarius Rising, is fantastic. And he is the originator of that uh, fast show sketch. Um, he was the one that they're satirising with. Uh, indeed. <laughs> anyway, you're not doing that voice. Come on, Cecil, tell us. It's not really possible to describe the action of a fight like that. Having no communication with each other, we simply had to go in and take our man and chance our arm, keep our eyes in the backs of our heads to see if anybody was trying to get us as we went down. But there was always the point where you had to go down anyway, whether there was anybody on your tail or not. The fight would begin, engage and disengage with bursts of 30 or 40 rounds, three in one tracer, so there was always some idea of where you were firing because your sights were really no good in these dogfights. There wasn't time to focus. It was just snap shooting. The whole squadron would enter the fight in good formation, but within half a minute, the whole formation had gone to hell. Just chaps wheeling and zooming and diving. On each other's tails, perhaps four in a row even. A German going down. One of our chaps on his tail. Another German on his tail. Another hun behind that. Extraordinary glimpses. People approaching head on firing at each other as they came. And then just at the last moment, turning and slipping away. Or not turning and smashing straight into each other. Yeah, uh... Would it last a long time, this? I, I don't think so. <laughs> no, not normally. Perhaps 15 to 20 minutes at, at most. most. Yeah, at most. Um, what, 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 because if you keep turning round like this and diving and zooming, you, you gradually lose altitude. Which we've said is precious. Or you get damaged, or your guns are jam, or you'd run out of ammunition. Um, or, or, or people would just lose their nerve and, and disengage. It, it was a desperate business. But but uh, how effective is it as a method of killing? Well, seemingly not very effective at all. None of the aces scored many kills in dogfights. It was a mess, too uncontrolled and far too risky. Better to take their kills in the first dive from a position of tactical superiority than to engage by uh, then to disengage by diving away before zooming back up to regain altitude for a possible further attack. That kind of fight, it minimised the risks as far as was possible. Uh, yeah, because a dogfight is fundamentally dangerous. Anyone could, you could be firing, someone could be firing at you and hit them. And it gets back to what Manock said, yeah. always from above. Yeah, so the this is not the, the way aces kill. Um, dogfights are a mess. You're more likely to be killed coming out of a dogfight and trying to escape when an ace will put someone like Richtofen will pounce on you and grab you. Uh, but it's 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 uh, yeah um what uh, let's talk about something slightly controversial Gary for a change uh, what about kills? Are pilots always accurate in the kills they claim? Well, there's no doubt that optimism was the watchword of scout pilots when making their claims for kills in combat, particularly in dogfights. The nature of the fighting meant that it was usually impossible for pilots to follow the victim right down to destruction on the ground. And in fact, they shouldn't do that. Well, they get shot from behind that. I mean, we've just, we, they get, they'd be subject to ground fire. 
Um, so, I, I mean, I think people are optimistic in the extreme, or sanguine, as I'd put there, <laughs> but optimistic in the extreme. Uh, but if they think they see any damage, they're, they're going to claim a kill. Uh, what sort of damage are we talking about? Well, any signs of leaking petrol vapour, that would automatically be supposed to mean that their erstwhile pilot had gone down in flames. Now, why why is there a problem with British claims in, in, in particular? There is a problem with some uh, German pilots, not Richthofen, funny enough. His claims have mostly been traced, not all, but most. Um, well, there's a go, reason for go, that. Under the British system, claims were allowed and indeed in some units encouraged for out-of-control aircraft, which thereafter counted as, as kills in their victory list. Now, why, why is it different for the British? Well, the reason is the British fought over the German lines. So the Germans could count their kills on the ground. The British couldn't have, couldn't do that. So that's, that's, that's why they, 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 they have to count out of control and things like that. Because they couldn't follow them down to the ground. If there's cloud, they just see them go into the cloud. Um, so, so, um, the British claims are optimistic. All of them, uh, by nature. And also you'd get, in the mad confusion of a dogfight, multiple claims would also result as pilots, quite unbeknownst to each other, successfully poured in, uh, successively poured in bullets into the same doomed aircraft and then each of them in all good faith put in a claim afterwards and some not in good faith no but when reflected in their combat reports the same aircraft could be shot down and claimed many times over and yet many of them were just you know disappeared fluttered down spinning down below the clouds in actual fact they weren't they, they pull out below the clouds and fly home. And one thing I forgot to mention earlier, many of the pilots would use the same manoeuvre to escape themselves. And they, they would, you know, they'd perhaps be a German claim, except they weren't on the ground, so the Germans probably wouldn't claim them. Now, controversially, as you've hinted, some pilots seem to have used the absence of any really effective system of corroboration, deliberately and persistently exaggerated their scores for their own personal aggrandizement. Yeah. Uh, we don't need to mention that. No, but there's one in my mind. There's one in my mind as well. Uh, and, 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 all, I mean, uh, so there are special cases. Uh, Manic's claims were inflated for another reason, but, uh, uh, not by him after he died. But, but uh, th- th- there are some who definitely do seem to have done and this. such a mixture of confusion embroidery at least partially explained the vast numbers of RFC claims that cannot now be matched with a known German victim. Yeah, because uh, the Germans just don't have this problem. They count them on the ground. Uh, 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 fundamentally, they count them on the ground. Now, um, so uh, let, let's let, so uh, so. What's next, Gary? What what should we talk about now? Well, when the British scouts encountered German reconnaissance or, artil- or artillery observation aircraft, they had the chance to really strike a, a blow directly in defence of the men below them, who would really suffer if these aircraft were allowed to successfully carry out their photographic recce and artillery yeah, because observation. they missions. would identify targets and then call down artillery fire on those British targets on the ground. So uh, they, by, by shooting it down, they're protecting uh, for the, the, the infantry in the lines, machine gun posts, artillery batteries uh, they're protecting them all they are in effect the equivalent of the British BE-2s that Richtofen preyed upon with such success but they were more modern and nowhere near as vulnerable as the British BE-2Cs the Ger- what the German uh, yeah the German Army Cooperation Aircraft yeah. yeah and this is what Flight Lieutenant Leonard Cocky and I'm going to be cocky of the uh, 1st Naval Squadron says 
We used to meet a number of lone two-seaters. Attacking tactics had not been very carefully thought out and the general rule was to go bald-headed at the Hun as soon as he was sighted. It was not long before we learnt the futility of this method, but in the meantime many opportunities were lost. Looking back now, the most glaring fault of those days was that the experience gained by individuals and squadrons was not passed on to others. Squadrons and staff seemed too full of their own little worries to bother about such things, and the people at home seemed to be too far away, even to be thought of. Too few people, even now, realise the importance of passing on their experience for the benefit of others. Well, I don't entirely agree with with, uh, with him there. No, uh, we've talked about people that did. People flight, like, flight Commander Colin McKenzie and his Ten Commandments, Manic. Manic, Manic, Manning. Uh, they all passed them on. But, the, the exception being Albert Ball, who was a berserker. Well, he tried to pass it on. But yeah, it, but he it, couldn't. He couldn't. But uh, I, I, and also, people like Manic were sent home. So later in the war, seventeen eighteen, they are starting to send home experienced scout pilots to work out. Uh, uh, so I, it's funny. But the, the point is, that's what Cocky thought. Yes. Uh, and therefore, it, that's that's real for him. Uh, he's not lying. No, that's, that, that that's was his, his experience within one naval squadron, RNAS. That, 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 you know. Right. Now, given the rawness of their subordinates, flight commanders had a vital role to play throughout the Dawn Patrol. And once more, you're going to be flight, you're working very hard. You're going to be Flight Lieutenant Robert Compston of 8 Naval Squadron. First and foremost, his duty was to bring down, drive down, or prevent from working all enemy aircraft in that sector of the front, which his commanding officer had ordered him to patrol, and at the same time to preserve the lives of his pilots. How easily written this last sentence, but how difficult of attainment was the preservation of those lives. Wow. Wow, that is really, really telling, isn't it? Yeah, but uh, uh, Gwilym Lewis, one of the best-known British pilots, he lived till he was about 100, uh, proud boasted he never lost one. So some of them achieved it. Uh, but uh, how difficult it was, yes. When the Scout Dawn Patrol was finally over, they would fly back to make their landings at the airfield. Well, um, and and human nature is that it's only then often that they'd realised what a close brush with uh, death they just had. Um, uh, why might that be? What, what is it that could have... Well, why might they not realise what was happening? Well, there was so much going on. The brain-numbing noise of aerial combat, the rattle of the machine guns, the underpinning roar of their engine, all meant that unless they actually saw the bullet holes stitching as if by magic across the fabric of their machine, if nothing vital was it, then they'd simply fly on in all ignorance. And you're going to once again be 2nd Lieutenant Cecil Lewis, 56 Squadron. A great deal of an aeroplane could be holed without affecting its ability to fly. Wings and fuselage could be, and often were, pierced in 50 uh, places, missing the occupants by inches, blissfully unaware of how close it had come until they returned to base. I've had bullets through my engine, bullets through my tanks, bullets through my windscreen and up through the floor of the cockpit, between my knees and out over my shoulder, and even, on one occasion, had the control stick knocked out of my hand by a splinter of wood chipped off the floorboards by a chance shot. Yet never, such is the mystery of destiny, that one bullet which would have been enough to settle my account. Well, that that what a, what escapes he'd had. But imagine getting out of your aeroplane, you suddenly see all these bullets all over the aeroplane. Um, what, what do you think they feel? 
because they're out of harm's way there. But but what about it? Well, rather bizarrely, the transition between sort of uttermost peril and an almost civilian detachment from the worst of the war was extremely marked. And and this strangely served as an added cause of nervous tension. So they'd sort of go from one thing to the other. In the blink of an eye, almost. Right. And once again, well, he's such a good, he's such a good uh, speaker. Uh, Lieutenant Cecil Lewis. When we were on the ground, all the strain was gone. The strain was only there for two and a half hours, perhaps twice a day. The rest of your time was your own. Once you were out of the air, it was quiet. It was safe. You were 15 to 20 miles behind the lines. You had a comfortable bed. You had sheets, even an electric light. You didn't have this strain that could occur if you never could get out of gunfire and the possibility of being hit even when you were asleep. So we lived always in the stretch or sag of nerves. We were either in deadly danger or no danger at all. This conflict between something like being at home and being in really a quite tight position had a great effect on us all and produced a certain strain, probably because of the change. It is. I could see it. I mean, you're not under... I mean, if you're in the front line for three days and then support lines, you're in danger all the time. But for these people, they go back. They're completely safe, but they've got to go back into danger. And they know what they're doing. Every dawn patrol, they go up. It could it could be the end of them. Um, you described it as a as an amazing contradiction, and I think that's right. Although mm. many were were only dimly aware of the ramifications, they've all got to deal with it in their own way. And some of them couldn't. Some of them couldn't. Well, I hope I hope people have enjoyed this. It's a bit of a look at uh, at just what it was like for. For those those scout pilots, uh, we've mentioned a couple of the because uh, we we have normally concentrated on army cooperation parts, but the, just coming out and so many of them would be killed before they'd even started. People like Manock and McCudden seemed to go on forever. They didn't, but they seemed to. But the new pilots, they'd often be here today and gone tomorrow, wouldn't they? Quite literally, in some cases. Cheers, Gary. Cheers, Pete. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. 
Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com pgmh or consider subscribing to the podcast for only two pounds per month and get ad free listening and bonus content you can find links for both on our facebook and twitter accounts sounds great doesn't it